Good morning, Four Corners. What a joy to be together again, worshiping our God together. This is uh, really should be the highlight of our week. We come together with God's people, bring Him praise, and get instruction from His Word. That's what we're doing during this period of our service. All of this is worship, uh, so we don't want to identify worship with just singing. We do have a tendency to do that. We worship when we sing, but the entire service today is our corporate worship service. And one of the ways we worship the Lord is by giving and receiving instruction from His Word. And so we come to that portion of our service now. And so if you would please go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans 10, verses 14 to 21. That's where we are today. Romans 10, 14 to 21. Today we finish another chapter of Paul's most well-known letter. We have 13 letters from the Apostle Paul. And Romans gives us the most extensive presentation of the gospel. It uh, has been a famous letter throughout the history of the church Uh, much like the Gospel of John, for example, uh, among the Gospels. Uh, But Paul's letter to the Romans gives us this very robust, clear, extensive presentation of the Gospel. And uh, we we don't want to overinflate that because there are many wonderful things in Paul's other letters and other letters within the New Testament. I was recently listening to uh, the letter... Uh, of Hebrews and just how much richness there is in that. I don't know that you could choose between Hebrews or Romans in terms of uh, which of those uh, you like better or which of those is, uh, is more edifying. Both are so rich. But Romans has had this special place throughout the history of the church, and it is because it is the most extensive presentation of the gospel that we have in the New Testament. We know that the gospel, the good news of God's grace in Christ, is the great theme of Romans. And you don't have to look deep into Romans in order to discover that because we get it at the very beginning. So in the very first few verses, Paul introduces himself, uh, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. So he starts very first verse with the gospel, and then he spends the next two verses explaining the gospels. Verse 2, which he prepared beforehand, and then in verse 3, concerning his son. And so at the very beginning of the letter, we get that we, we, we're told that this whole letter is going to be about the gospel. And then we find in chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, those wonderful words that really form the theme of the letter. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then he goes on once again to explain it, which God prepared beforehand. I mean, uh, (laughs) that was from the previous one. But which is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And then he goes on to explain how the righteousness of God is granted to us by faith. And so we know that this letter to the Romans is all about the gospel. Paul was a gospel man. His entire life revolved around the gospel of God's grace in Christ. This was the theme of his life, the theme of his most extensive letter. And so let me just ask you this, is this the theme of your life? 
When your kids are raised at 18, 19, 20, they go off to college and uh, someone is talking with them about how they were raised and, and asking them to describe their parents. Would your children's minds first go to this, my mom, my dad was a gospel person. And they may not say it in those words, but it's the question I think that we're all meant to ask as we come to the figure of the Apostle Paul and particularly of this letter to the Romans. Is this the great theme of your life, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, let me even press a little bit further. You may be a Bible person, but are you a gospel person? Because to be a Bible person is to be a gospel person. The message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible is a story. It is one continuous story. And that story centers on Jesus Christ. That's the reason in our vision statement we have building on exposition and then centering on Christ. We don't want to just be Bible people. We want to rightly be Bible people, and that means we must be gospel people. The Bible is about the gospel. When we get to chapters 9 through 11, Paul is dealing with the question of Israel's rejection of the gospel. So different facets of the gospel are presented throughout. And in chapters 9 through 11... It is Israel's rejection of the gospel. The gospel has gone out, and many Gentiles have come to faith in Christ, but Israel has largely rejected the gospel. Not every single Israelite, but Israel as a whole, corporately and largely, has rejected the gospel. They have not believed. Paul explains this in terms of both God's election and Israel's responsibility. Why is it that Israel has not believed? Why have they rejected the gospel? These are two sides of the same coin. God's electing purposes and Israel's responsibility. So that leads us to ask the question, what did Israel do? In what way were they culpable? In what way were they the source of their own rejection of Christ or of the gospel? And this question is what we've been looking at for the last few weeks. What did Israel do in terms of rejecting the gospel? And just to sum it up briefly, they pursued right standing with God by their own works rather than by faith. They sought righteousness by the law rather than by Christ. And so think about it this way. In place of believing, they put doing, and in place of Christ, they put the law. Theirs was a religious rejection. And as we saw last week, they chose justification by law-keeping rather than justification by faith. They were seeking rescue or salvation by doing rather than believing. And, And this applies to all people of all time. We're dealing with something in Romans 9 through 11 very specific. And that's why sometimes it seems a bit tedious because uh, the, the application of it sometimes is not immediate to us. We're dealing with something very specific in Romans 9 through 11 that has to do with redemptive history. It has to do with what is happening 
When the gospel comes on the scene, preached explicitly, Christ uh, crucified, raised, when that gospel is going out in the first century, we're dealing with this phenomenon of Israel's rejection of that gospel. But these are truths that we can apply throughout history, and the reformers picked this up from their Roman Catholic context, and, and they made the point, look, Doing is not the way to be right with God. Believing in Christ is the only way to be right with God. And so anytime we come to material like this, we have to process in our own minds and ask in our own hearts, am I relying on doing rather than believing? And, and to rely on believing is not to rely on the sincerity and generation of your own faith. It is to rely on Christ. To believe by nature, by definition, is to look away from yourself to the object of your faith, which is Christ. It's the opposite of doing. Doing to be saved is focused on yourself. Believing unto righteousness is to look to God rather than self. We are rescued by believing, not by doing. And I hope if there's anyone among us who's been here for the last few weeks who thinks that uh, they are going to stand before God and be able to give an account of their deeds and that on that account, God is gonna let you in. I, I pray that the Lord is using these sermons and using these passages to break that apart for you. To help you to see that there is no way that you could earn God's favor. There's no way that you could please him unto salvation. It is not doing, but believing. And this theme of Israel's rejection, this theme of Israel's responsibility, this theme of doing versus believing continues in our passage today with a focus on hearing the gospel but not believing in it. Israel heard the gospel but did not believe. And so the title for the sermon this morning is Hearing Without Believing. There's a lot of repetition in this portion of the letter, but Paul is coming at this from various angles uh, as he considers the rejection of Israel. We're going to break this passage up today. We're going to take on the whole passage, verses 14 to 21, but we're going to break it up into two parts, and these are our two points if you're writing them down. So first, the path of response, and second, the problem of rebellion. As he considers Israel hearing without believing these are the two parts to this text as he explains it. The path of response and the problem of rebellion. So let's now go and read this passage and the passage before it. So if you would please stand with me as we read God's word. We're going to go back to chapter 9, verse 30. And I pray as we've done before that you will piece all of this together in your own mind. That you will uh, let the apostle explain himself to you before I try to explain what he's saying. Because uh, that's all I'm trying to do up here, is just explain what this inspired writer of Scripture has said to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's hear his logic. Let's hear this portion of his argument. This is the Word of God. So beginning in chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? 
that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, he's quoting the Old Testament here, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. By the way, notice how much Paul is quoting the Old Testament in this portion of uh, his letter. Chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we Proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Here's that wonderful verse. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a wonderful promise. And then our passage for today. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And let me just read The first verse of uh, chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. After all that's been said, after all of the sin that we've been discussing of Israel, has God thrown his people away? Have they stumbled in order that they might fall? And Paul's going to spend chapter 11 answering 
that question. So you can go ahead and be seated at this point. Let's go to God in prayer and ask for his blessing on our time together. Father, we are humbled by the opportunity to be here together, to be before your word, to be before your face. God, in every humble gathering of your people, there are infinitely important eternal things happening. Lord, we recognize that there are angels who are looking into the work that you are doing among us this morning. Heavenly beings, the likes of which if we saw with our eyes, we would be terrified and amazed. They are intrigued by what is happening among us this morning. God, what, a, what, what an unfathomable reality that is. God, how weighty. Lord, to consider that those very angels are ministering spirits, working among the elect this morning, working to uh, take the word and, and make it to, helping it to stick in our minds and, and protecting us from things we don't even know are there. And Lord, thank you for the work that you do in our lives by means of your ministering spirits, by means of angels who are among us and who watch over us. And yet, Lord, we think this morning of the writer of Hebrews as he describes Christ much greater than an angel, that he is the God-man, he is God with us, and he is our focus this morning. It is he that guides us. Lord, we thank you that he is with us right now as we come to this word from you. Lord, as we consider Jesus' words, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Uh, Lord, we recognize that your son speaks to us this morning through his word. Where your word reigns, Christ reigns. Where your word speaks, Christ speaks. As a father, we pray that we would be those who hear him and do his word uh, as he describes in the Sermon on the Mount. Those who build our lives on the rock and not on sinking sand. Help us to be hearers this morning and then to go and do as we have been told by our Father. Lord, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that your Spirit is guiding this service and we pray that he would guide now the preaching of your word that he would guide the preaching and the hearing. We pray for our children in the back, and we ask, Lord, that as they are learning your word this morning, God, that you would regenerate their hearts. We pray that you would grant them wisdom, uh, that you would strengthen their character, that you would give them insight into uh, the rebelliousness and idolatry of their own hearts, that they would begin to see uh, themselves from your perspective, God, Uh, But they would recognize that you have made a way for them to be saved. You have sent your son that the idolatry and rebelliousness and selfishness of their hearts can be forgiven. And their hearts can be changed. God, I pray that you be merciful to our kids, that you be merciful to us. And we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we come first this morning to the path of response. So go ahead and look with me at verses 14 to 17, and we'll come back to verse 16. We're not going to give a lot of attention to that at this point. Uh, Verse 16 will function, will factor into the next point, uh, but I want to take this entire chunk together 
So verses 14 to 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That's very interesting here. Paul gives us the anatomy of gospel response. The anatomy of gospel response. This is the path of gospel response. That's the reason I've entitled the point, The Path of Response. Remember from last week, the one way. We talked last week about two voices and one way. There is one way. This is the one way. This is how it happens. This is the background material from verse 13. As we're reading through the verses I just read, we are getting background material for verse 13. Uh, by the way, remember that these verses just flow. Right, So in preaching, you're trying to figure out how to divide the text up and present it. But there, there is no, it's not as though you would have read this letter early on. You know, the, the congregation, when uh, Phoebe from Kincry brought the letter to, uh, to the church in Rome, and they would have read it, they would have just kept going from verse 13 to 14. Verse 13 ends, everyone who calls <coughs> on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then you get the background material for the calling on the Lord and being saved. You get that here in verses 14 to 17. How is it that people come to call on the name of the Lord and be saved? Paul gives the answer in these verses. How is it that you came to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved? How is it that anybody you've ever known who is a Christian came to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And before we look at the details, notice that Paul's, notice Paul does this sort of thing with his language. How can this happen without this? So if you follow the way he's asking these questions, he's basically saying, how can this happen without this? And how can this happen without this? And how can this happen without this? And this line of questioning is meant to show us the necessity of these things. In other words, what Paul lists in verses 14 and 15, and then understanding it in light of verse 17, what Paul lists there, uh, those are necessary elements. Paul is describing the necessity of these things. This is how people come to be saved. This is the way the sovereign God does it. Now let me say this. When we analyze the practical inner workings in human experience and in the human heart of how it is that a person comes to be saved, we are not detracting anything from God's sovereignty. Nothing is being taken away from God's sovereignty. God sovereignly uses means to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And so what we are seeing here is that on the human level, this is the way it goes down. This is the way the sovereign God saves people. 
Let me give you a quote from Calvin on this point. He says, considering these verses, the gospel does not fall like rain from the clouds, but is brought by the hands of men wherever it is sent from above. It is brought by people. And isn't it amazing, just to pause for a second, I realize God uses us unto the salvation of people. Isn't that amazing? I mean, some of you have led people to the Lord, and, and we hear, I had a professor one time who used to always talk about winning people to the Lord. It used to make me a little uncomfortable, but I get what he was saying. I mean, that's what happens practically is God uses us Christians as a means of bringing people to salvation. How incredible is that? That the sovereign king of the universe would use fallible people like us to see people saved and to come into the kingdom. We know from Romans 1 what people do with natural revelation. So, you know, you've oftentimes heard the question of, What about that uh, villager in some far-off distant place who's never heard the gospel, but he in his heart sincerely reaches out to take hold of God, and he uh, maybe he will make it. He never heard the gospel. He never heard Christ, but maybe he will make it there in the end. Well, the problem with that is what Romans 1 says about all humanity, all people. There is no such thing as the distant villager who is doing what I just described. It does not exist on planet earth. It has never existed on planet earth. All humanity does what we find in Romans 1. With natural revelation, they suppress the truth and replace God with the creature everywhere you go. No matter how nice they may be, they are suppressing the truth of God and instead of worshiping their maker, they are replacing him with the creation. So people do not call upon the Lord simply based on what they see in nature. That does not happen. It does not happen happen. They need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And let me just say this, getting this firmly in our minds, getting this firmly foundational for our understanding of what the Bible teaches about evangelism and and the gospel and so forth, getting this clear will fuel missionary zeal. Where this is unclear, there will be a decrease in missionary zeal. This has driven missionaries from all over the world to forsake all, to take the gospel to peoples who have never heard of the love of Christ. They have never heard that God sent his own son into the world to save sinners and that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. They need to hear the gospel. It's not going to fall on them like rain. They're not going to see a tree or the sun or a cricket and think, 
glory to God. They're going to replace God with creation. And that is precisely what Paul so clearly says in Romans 1. So what does he say? We get that preliminary point in place. What does Paul say here? Well, in verses 14 to 15, he gives a series of steps. A chain of events that culminates in a person's salvation. Working backwards, this is what we get. So we're going to start at the bottom of verse 15. We're going to work our way up. We're going to start kind of, we're going to do it chronologically. But Paul goes backwards. He's, he's taking us back down into it. He's starting with salvation, call upon the name of the Lord, and he's just ticking his way back. So we're going to start at the beginning and move forward. forward. So first, God sends preachers. And here... The focus is specifically on the apostolic preaching. This is most fundamentally to be applied to the apostles. Uh, God sent out the apostles. But by extension, anyone whom God would call to preach his gospel. We would have to uh, extend it beyond just the apostles. But most fundamentally what we find here is the apostolic ministry. God appointed the apostles And sent them out to preach. God appointed them in sending his son to choose them. Christ chose them and sent them out. The Holy Spirit came upon them and empowered them for their apostolic ministry. The triune God called these apostles. So first, God sends preachers. Second, The preachers go out and preach the message. And Paul quotes Isaiah 52, 7 and saying, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The arrival of gospel preachers is so beautiful because the message is so good. Uh, One commentator said it's not that The feet of these preachers is so beautiful. There are many different looking feet going out into the world declaring the gospel. But what is so beautiful is the fact that God's righteousness given to sinners through Christ is going out into the world. And where that is being preached, where the good news is being preached, there is salvation. And I think this leads us to have great gratitude. Gratitude for all those who've brought the gospel to us. You know, those of us in this room who are believers and Christians, we can look back on our lives and we can see people who've brought the gospel to us and specifically the, those who brought the gospel to us when we were converted, whether it was sitting under the ministry of a pastor or it was a youth worker or someone at a camp or it was someone who was mentoring you or speaking into your life or someone in your family or your parents, whoever it is, this, is, this should bring us to a point of gratitude, thanking God for the preaching of his gospel that has gone on and led to us being here. In other words, we're not here in a vacuum We're not here singing God's praises, delighting in his glory, loving his word in a vacuum. God has used people. He has used people in our lives, and that motivates us to be those very same people whom God uses in the lives of others. 
that he would do this work in their hearts as well. By the way, this also sends us into church history. You know, those of you who think church history is boring, um, and I will be honest, you know, I've been listening to this uh, history of Christianity for a while, and there is a point uh, in the Middle Ages where, uh, now I love, I love medieval history, but there's a point where all the, the various popes are being described, and I'm like, man, this is getting kind of boring. All of the political inner workings of the papacy in medieval Europe. Uh, but apart from that, perhaps, and maybe other little bits, uh, we go back to church history out of a sense of gratitude because we recognize that God has, through these people in history, brought us to the point that we are now. Think about those first missionaries to the Anglo-Saxons. Many of us descend from them, and we think about those first missionaries in the early Middle Ages who brought the gospel to the British people, to the British Isles, ultimately leading to many of us being here today preaching and uh, teaching and singing of God's glorious grace. Another implication for us, I think, from this is that preaching is at the center of the life of the church. We see that here, right? How is it that God saves? He does by means of uh, this hearing of the gospel, and ultimately that is traced back to, as Paul describes it here, gospel preaching. Preaching must be at the center of the life of the church. This is God's great means of bringing about salvation in the hearts of People. This is one of the reasons why our very first point on our vision statement is building on exposition. We believe that centering ourselves or building ourselves on the Word of God and on the preached Word of God sequentially through books is the means by which God will grow and prosper His church. And by the way, it is not the preacher, it is the preaching of the word of God. It is the preaching of the apostolic witness, which is what we're trying to do here this morning as we walk through Paul's words. The, the apostle who speaks for God. So the importance of preaching. You know, I have a, a few friends, uh, we go way back, and uh, some Catholic friends of mine, one of, one of these guys was in our wedding, and He's a priest in North Carolina and another friend of mine who was a Benedictine monk. And I spent a lot of time with these guys in college. I was the, I was the Bible-thumping Baptist and they were the, you know, the uh, Latin-reciting uh, uh, Catholics. And we, we always had some good conversations uh, and, and lots of arguments and debates. Um, but one of the conversations I had just, just in the last few years with um, this priest friend of mine was, about these uh, ridiculously short homilies that you get in the Catholic church, in Catholic worship services, these 10 or 15 minute uh, sermons. And I was just being a little critical of that and asking him to consider how it is that the Roman Catholic church today uh, has about a 10 minute slot for preaching. And yet when you go back to the early church fathers, Ambrose, Augustine, Chrysostom, and so forth, what you find among these heroes of the Catholic Church is they preach pretty long sermons, and you can read those sermons, and you just keep flipping and flipping and flipping and flipping the pages. And so my question for him is, why in the world has, has the preaching of the Word of God been reduced 
to a 10-minute little speech, a 10-minute little homily that oftentimes has nothing to do with what the Bible itself is saying. All of this to say, preaching is fundamental to the church. And this is the reason why in the Reformation, preaching became so central and the pulpit became central in the worship of the people of God. This is the reason that we take it seriously as a church. So second, the preachers go out and preach the message. But now I want to look at third and fourth. The people hear the message and believe. The people hear the message and believe. And this is where we need to pay particular attention to verse 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is an explicit gospel with an explicit Lord Jesus Christ. An explicit gospel with an explicit Christ must be heard in order to be believed. Now, I try not to give you very long quotations in in a sermon, but when I read this chunk from John MacArthur, I said, I just have to to do that. I have to to give that uh, to the people. So let me give you this quote from John MacArthur, which I think is so uh, helpful in understanding how we need to hear an explicit gospel with an explicit Christ. He says this, The purpose of evangelism is not to use human persuasion and clever devices. It's amazing how many preachers today talk about preaching as being a communicator. How often do you hear preachers talk about they're communicators? We are not communicators. We are preachers of the word of God. Not just TED Talk guys. That's not what a preacher is. I'll start over. The purpose of evangelism is not to use human persuasion and clever devices to manipulate confessions of faith in Christ, but to faithfully proclaim the gospel of Christ, through which the Holy Spirit will bring conviction and salvation to those who hear and accept the word of Christ. It is tragic that many appeals to salvation are a call to trust in someone and something they know nothing about. Positive responses to such empty appeals amount to nothing more than faith in faith. A blind, unrepentant, unsubmissive trust in a contentless message that results in a false sense of spiritual security. Such false evangelism cruelly, oh, we do it out of love. It's cruel. It's cruel. Cruelly leads the unsaved to believe they are saved and leaves them still in their sin without a savior and without salvation. What if it is the case that all these attractional churches who are harping on various devices and ways to get people in and get people to pray a prayer and get people to have some sort of contentless, superficial faith are really acting in such cruel ways so as not to lead to a secure, sound conversion through preaching an explicit, sin-hating, Christ-coming, Christ-redeeming, blood-covering, substitutionary, sacrificial gospel of grace. Fifth, out of this heart of faith in Christ, 
they now call on the one in whom they have believed. So out of this heart of faith, this belief is now present. In this heart, they now call on the one in whom they have believed. And that brings us back to verse 13. And this is the beginning of relationship. By the way, when you read verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When you read those words, they scream relationship. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? That's where it's at. That's, that's the beginning of salvation. You call upon the name of the Lord, and you call upon him because you believe in him, and you believe in him because you've heard the gospel, an explicit Christ. And you hear because there has been preaching, and that has happened because of God's sovereign call and God's sovereign sending and choosing and so forth. Do you know Jesus? I mean, just let me just throw it out there bluntly. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Because this initial calling on the Lord then leads to a life of calling on the Lord. Calling on him in reliance, trusting, relying, worshiping, glorifying. You will call your way right to heaven. You will call on the Lord day in and day out, right up until and through death. And you'll keep calling on him for eternity. That's the reason eternal life is to know God. We already have eternal life. Call upon the name of the Lord. Know him. So this is how people come to be saved. This is how people come to call on the name of the Lord. So what happened with Israel? Now we gotta go to the second point. What happened with Israel? This is the anatomy of gospel response. This is the path of response. This is how it goes down on the ground in a human heart. But now we come to the problem of rebellion. What happened with Israel? Let's look at verses 16 to 21. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So where did everything break down for Israel? Where was the breakdown? Where did everything just kind of fall off the cliff. Maybe it's the case that they just didn't hear. Their ears were clogged up. They just did not hear. Paul has already mentioned their ignorance. So maybe the problem is that they did not, did not hear the gospel message. Well, Paul does not want this question to linger very long at all in the minds of his readers. And so Paul, to this, emphatically says, no, no, it is not the case that they haven't Heard, And he says this in verse 16 when he quotes Isaiah 53, 1 from that famous 
prophecy of Christ's coming. He says, Lord, he quotes Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So it has been heard. Paul is appropriating those those words of Isaiah and he's suggesting, he's saying that those words of Isaiah are prophetic of what's happening in Paul's day. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? The reason he's doing that is because Isaiah Isaiah is going to go on in chapter 53 and preach about the coming of Christ and his sufferings, how he bore our iniquities. Chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed and so forth. It has been heard. And then in verse 18, he is even more explicit. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now here he uses the language of Psalm 19, 4, which is talking about natural revelation in creation. But he's using that language to show that just as the voice of creation, through the sun and the clouds and everything, just as the voice of creation extends to all the earth, so too has the gospel gone out to earth. All, including Israel, is similar to what we find in Colossians 1.23. The gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Now, does that mean every single individual person has heard the gospel? That every people group has heard the gospel in Paul's day? No, it doesn't mean that. But what it means is that both Jew and Gentile, the world is hearing as a whole, without boundaries, the gospel. It is going Out, there is universal hearing. So the problem is not that they haven't heard. And that means that you have to pull in the prior steps as well. Preachers have been sent. Preachers have arrived. The message has been preached. And Paul here emphatically says, and heard. The message has been heard. But what was the response? Instead of believing And calling on the Lord, they failed to obey the gospel. As verse 16 says, the problem was a failure in submitting, not a failure in hearing. And I want you to notice this close connection between believing and obeying. Notice that. Believing and obeying. These words are being used synonymously. Isn't that interesting? Think about it for a moment. In the New Testament... The language of believing in the Lord Jesus is used synonymously with the language of obeying the Lord Jesus. Obeying him and believing in him. And that helps us have a a fully orbed understanding of what it means for a person to really come to faith in Christ. You know, in in some circles, the way the gospel is presented, uh, you would think that it's just simply just say, uh, okay, uh, Jesus, I believe in you, period. But there is always in biblical faith, in confessing Jesus as Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, there is always housed in biblical faith also repentance. Repent and believe. We must turn away from Sin, in order to put our confidence in Christ. Turning away from sin and believing on the Lord Jesus are one and the same act. We obey him, we believe in him. 
we see that these words are used together. Uh, let me just give you a few instances just in Romans. So Romans 1.5, Paul's preaching was to bring about the obedience of faith. And then chapter 6, verse 17, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And that also tells us that faith is not just mental assent. Faith is not just reciting the creeds. It's not just saying, okay, Jesus came, check. There's one God, check. Jesus is his son, check. Jesus came and died on the cross for my sins and he rose again, check, check, check. It's not just mentally assenting to these bullet points of classic Orthodox Christian truth. No, it's conceived of as obedience from the heart to right teaching. And then in chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, as I just said, that Jesus is Lord, the Lordship of Christ is at the center of saving faith. And I think that's part of what MacArthur's talking about. We're not just believing in some general idea. We're not just believing in the fact that we need faith. We're believing in a very specific person who is the God-man who came in space and time, 1 Corinthians 15, and he did things for us. He died, he rose, and as Hebrews describes so beautifully, he's, he's passed through the heavens, he's ascended, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He's coming again. This is the Christ that we must believe in. Israel's ultimate problem was rebellion against this king. They did not submit to the loving rule of the Lord Jesus. And that is what it means to accept Jesus as your Savior. Let me ask you this question. Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? You know, when I was a kid, the, the language that was often used, and it has some biblical truth to it, but it's, it's, it's too vague, I think, to be as helpful as it needs to be, is have you asked Jesus into your heart? Well, there is some truth behind that. I mean, Jesus does come to, we receive Jesus, John 1, and uh, Jesus dwells in our heart by faith. Uh, this is all true, but it's vague. It, it's not precise enough. What in the world does it mean to ask Jesus into your heart? We tell a seven-year-old, do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? What seven-year-old who's been raised in church, who, who, who loves his mom and dad, who, who, who thinks Jesus is great. I mean, he's this nice guy who heals people and came and he, and he suffered for us and just his general stuff. And, and yes, I asked Jesus into my heart. The kind of language is not as helpful as I think other language that is more biblical. But let me ask you this question. If, if I ask you, have you accepted Jesus as your savior? Let me ask it this way. Have you bowed your knee to Christ? Have you gotten on your face before the Lord of the universe, the Lord of lords, the King of kings? Have you gotten down on both knees, put your face, spiritually speaking, in the dirt and said, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my sovereign King. Because to ask that question is the same as to ask this question, have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? But it puts meat on those bones. Paul finishes in verses 19 to 21 by explaining 
that Israel knew from their scriptures that the gospel had been proclaimed, that it was going out to all the earth, that it was including the Gentiles, and that it would provoke Israel to jealousy. He first quotes Moses, and then he quotes Isaiah. So let me read those last three verses to you again, verses 19 to 21. But I ask, did Israel not understand? And here he's going to quote those two biblical authors to say, of course they did. It's in their scriptures. It's in their Bible. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. That's the Gentiles. And I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So there's the issue. Before we get into chapter 11 and we see the pure mercy of God. The pure mercy of God to this apostate nation is like the sheer mercy of God to us ungodly Gentiles. And that's where he gets at the end of chapter 11. Praise God for his mercy. All people will praise God for his mercy. Apostate Israel, who is mercifully brought back, and we'll get there, and the Gentiles, who were not even pursuing righteousness, but who found it by God's mercy. But before we get there, we need to end on this point in chapter 10. The issue is a disobedient and contrary people. That's Israel. Despite God's grace, despite his continually outstretched hands, Israel has rejected him. And by the way, let me say this. You haven't heard me say a lot about the modern nation of Israel, but I just do, I do want to say this. Whatever we are to make of the modern state of Israel and its significance in light of Bible prophecy throughout Scripture, what we cannot conclude is that the modern state of Israel has in any way moved away from this state of apostasy. What we cannot conclude is that the modern state of Israel, those who live in the modern state of Israel, are, have returned to their God. That has not happened. And many of us will say, yet. But it has, of now, not happened. They are, they have been, and they remain largely as a nation and as a people who has been preserved throughout history, but they are still a disobedient and contrary people. This was prophesied by Moses and Isaiah, and now as Israel largely turns away from its Messiah, it has come to fruition, and we see it in our own day. Go, preach the gospel to the Jewish people, and some will come to faith in Christ, but what you will find largely is hardness of heart. What we experience today is like what was experienced in Paul's day. The fullness of the Gentiles has not yet come in. But we will get to some of those issues later in Romans 11. So, is Israel responsible? Absolutely. But is God sovereign over Israel's rejection? Is Israel culpable for rejecting its God and his Christ? 
their Messiah? Absolutely. Is God sovereign? Is God sovereignly in control over Israel's unbelief? Absolutely. Look at John. Well, you don't have to turn there, but let me read to you John 12, verses 37 to 40. This is from the ministry of Jesus. It says, though he had done so many signs before them, listen to the language, they still did not believe in him. That's what we've been looking at. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Listen to this. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded, who? God. God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now you figure that out. You're not going to be able to. How can it be that Israel is responsible for their unbelief, and yet God is the one who has blinded them and hardened them so that they cannot believe. That's beyond us. That's beyond us. And those who are so intent on trying to philosophically figure that out have reached up, as it were, into heaven. They have gone far beyond their rational capacities. But let us affirm these two truths, always. We are responsible, and God is sovereign. Both of these are biblical truths. So let me conclude with this this morning. Just by virtue of the fact that you're here, God is calling you with outstretched arms. This language of of God with outstretched arms, outstretched hands, he's calling. Just by the fact that you are present here this morning, God is calling you with outstretched arms. So let me ask you, You're not a Christian here this morning. Will you believe on the Lord Jesus? Will you submit to him as king? Will you stop being your own king? Stop worshiping your own fashioned gods and look to Christ and obey from the heart the standard of teaching to which we have been committed and fall on our faces trusting in what Christ did alone for the forgiveness of our sins. Will you believe and call on the Lord or will you walk out of here this morning disobeying? Will it be said of you that God held out his hands to a disobedient and contrary person? Before the holy angels of God, each of us will stand before God one day. Will it be said of you in that unfathomable scene that's coming? that God held out his hands to a disobedient and contrary person. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would sanctify us by it. We pray that we would treasure Christ, that we would submit to him as Lord, that we would call upon him all the days of our lives in this personal relationship that we would trust in a biblical Christ, an explicit gospel. Lord, help us. Help us to walk with you and to faithfully serve our master. In Christ's name, amen.